How do you maximize a vertical jump for someone with a narrow infrasternal angle? Good morning. Happy Monday. I have no coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. Crazy busy Monday as usual. Um, probably a little bit busier than normal. Got vacation coming up soon, so it always seems like productivity goes through the roof when that happens. Um, quick reminder for those of you on iFashion University, you have a call this week with the one uh, Mike Robertson, so please don't miss out on that. Okay, time is short, so let's dig into Monday's Q&A. This comes from Ryan, and Ryan says, Hi, Bill. Hi, Ryan. Um, thank you for everything you do. I was wondering if you, uh, what would you do in this situation? I have a narrow ISA individual and their safety bar box squat is about 100 pounds heavier than no box and coming off the box velocity is quite high. Without the box, the transition point feels incredibly hard and velocity coming up is quite slow. I know you recommend box squat with band assistance for people needing to get better at creating force, but since the box squat, squat is so much better than the regular squat, would you keep the band assistance or get rid of the box? The goal is to increase vertical jump. So my thought is that we would want the, the transition point to be as strong as possible. So first and foremost, Ryan, I think you're on the right track as far as principles are concerned here. But I think that we can take this opportunity to look at number one, uh, how does this archetype affect um, the application of principles and then, then a sequence of strategies that, that may be helpful for those other folks that are that are training similar people. So let's let's kind of look at it from from that perspective. So first and foremost, we have to kind of consider what do we need for for our our max vertical jump. So number one, we need a sufficient downward movement to take advantage of the yielding action of the connective tissues as they store and release energy. So internally, so we gotta think about this internally first and foremost, is that the guts are gonna move downward and that's gonna actually provide us an element of, of this yielding action, but it also provides a downward force that we're gonna have to control. Externally speaking, we have extremity muscular that's going to have to eccentrically orient to allow us to fall in the counter movement aspect uh, of the vertical jump. And then we have to have a quick concentric orientation to create the turnaround. And that also enhances this energy storage and release action from the, from the connective tissues. Now, so a couple things to keep in mind. Um, you can only jump as high as you can get your guts off the bottom of the pelvis. Because once they start coming down, so do you. So let's get a, a general idea of what we're talking about. The average human being can probably get airborne for about half a second. Um, those of uh, athletes that we see on TV that do amazing things um, can do that for a lot longer. So for instance, I believe it was Michael Jordan that was like 0.92 seconds. So it's almost twice as long as the average human being, which um, again, makes them kind of stellar at what they do. So not only do we have to be able to get these guts airborne, but we, we've got a timing issue to execute this because if we don't observe the time constraint, we number one, we can't take advantage of the energy storage and release element of this, and therefore we're not going to get off the ground. So if we go too fast in our descent, we don't give ourselves enough time to yield. So the connective tissues will behave too stiff. We get less energy uh, in the yielding action. We have less energy storage and therefore less energy release and the jump is lower. If we go too slow or we take too long of a duration, um, the yielding action is actually gonna get dampened. We release the energy at the bottom of the jump and then once again, we can't jump very high. And so there is an element of skill here, but we can actually train this um, in, in, the, in the training hall um, to a certain degree. Now, let's look at the narrow ISA archetype and, and see what they're, what they're not so good at under these circumstances. So number one, we've got an eccentric orientation bias of that anterior pelvic outlet, which means that we're gonna be better at going downward, so better at descending than at actually than stopping and ascending. So we have a tendency to prolong the descent and we get that dampening effect. Um, you'll often see in the descent, you'll see the, the internal rotation of the hips as the knees sort of approximate. You'll see the increased knee flexion under these circumstances because we've got the, the center of gravity is, is somewhat forward because of the descent of the, of the anterior outlet. And so um, they're also gonna bring their knees inward in an attempt to try to stop that descent. And so when they pull in like that, they're trying to actually pull the anterior outlet open and concentrically orient it, but again, 
structurally not quite as good. So we have a problems list here that we want to attack. So strategy number one is to control the outlet. And I think you're already on, on point with this, Ryan, um, by using the box squat. So the box squat creates this constraint um, that prevents the anterior outlet from descending farther. Um, we can also sit back onto the box, which gives us a little bit of a mechanical advantage in regards to unloading some of the anterior outlets so we can actually capture some of that, that concentric orientation. What I would do though, Ryan, is I would also add in a static concentric yielding squat. And so in this position, you're going to teach them how to hold these positions um, without the box. So they're going to teach them to stop the descent themselves. So the box squat can definitely train it. There's no question about that. But I think you're right that at some point in time, you're going to want to remove this box and teach them how to control this thing. Now, we want to go concentric yielding squat because we don't want to take the yielding element out of this because we're going to need that for the energy storage and release. If we went with an overcoming static, we would certainly get the concentric orientation and there might be a reason to do that periodically, but we're not going to get the connective tissue behaviors that we want. Um, which is the yielding action. So now strategy two, let's talk about that emphasis, okay? So by, by um, sitting down on the box, the guts are gonna land on the outlet. We're gonna get some yielding action in regards to the, to the pelvic outlet. We're also gonna get the yielding action through the skeleton because as we unload the, the body onto the, the box, all the connective tissues are gonna expand and store energy. If you start with the reverse band, kind of like you mentioned, I think that's a great idea because what that does is it actually slows the descent of the gut. So the guts will, will, will fall at whatever rate they, they will based on gravity, but we can slow it down by, by sort of manipulating um, the, the force with, with the reverse band, but we still get the unload on the box. We still get the yield. It's just not as magnified. So this is just like our progressive resistance. So in this case, we're taking some of this, this loading strategy away and then we can superimpose it back onto them. So eventually we're gonna to start to take that, that band away, but, but what we don't wanna do is increase the delay on the box. So if you've got somebody that you, you've taken the band away, you wanna make sure that the impulse off the box is still as quick as possible because the, the longer they're on the box, and remember we got a timing issue with this vertical jump, we don't wanna dampen um, the, the energy uh, that, that we're storing in the yielding action, we wanna make sure that we can release it. So now strategy number three becomes working on this time constraint. So the seated box jump is a great way to do this because what we're doing is we're training this outlet um, to remain um, in the appropriate position based on the box squatting that we've done before. Um, the extremity behavior is gonna be very, very similar. So, so we're gonna control how much eccentric orientation that we're getting in the extremities. We're gonna maintain our, our yielding action. But I would say you start with the higher box and you, you work on controlling the descent of the pelvic diaphragm and then you slowly lower the box as much as is required to maximize the vertical jump. Strategy number four, um, now we want to really magnify this, this time constraint um, to, to a, a significant degree. And so this is where we're gonna use something that's gonna be much more impulsive. So we're gonna use something like a kettlebell squat clean, or we're gonna use an oscillatory impulse um, type of squat to really, really narrow this time constraint. Because we've already trained the position uh, of the pelvic outlet. So we've got our concentric orientation. We wanna make sure we maintain our yielding action. Now we wanna just cut the amount of time that it takes to make, to make this turnaround so we can maximize the return on investment as far as the yielding action and the release of energy to maximize the vertical jump. So, so Ryan, like I said, I think you're already on it. Add a couple of things in, think through these strategies and how you would apply them in the gym. And I, and I, I think you've got money here. Um, but what this is, is just a representation of how valuable the archetypes can be because the, the the bias of the structure is going to tell us typically what their capabilities are going to be and then it can guide us to optimize the training to kind of overcome these inherent limitations that are that are based on structure so ryan i hope that's helpful for you if you have any other questions or concerns please send them to askbillharman at gmail.com askbillharman at gmail.com and i'll see you guys tomorrow so is that crazy hip internal rotation measure a laxity problem or not good morning happy tuesday i have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect 
Okay, wacky weather. Had some stuff I had to do this morning. Running behind, time is short. Let's dig into Tuesday's Q&A. This comes from Brian, Brian with an I. Brian says, hi, Bill. Hi, Brian. He says, I just watched your video on the extreme hip flexion measures where the spine is a source of compensation that magnifies the hip ER range. I'm assuming that there's a similar explanation for the extreme IR range of motion. If so, can you unpack that for me? Brian, I would be very, very happy to unpack that. But let's talk about measures in general, first and foremost. All measures are dirty. Nothing is accurate. So we, we have to respect that fact. I can honestly say that I probably never measured anyone um, accurately. But what I have become over time, so I've been doing this for 30 years, what I have become is reliable. So I'm very consistent with how I execute and, and have probably improved in the last 10 years even more so uh, because I paid a lot closer attention to how I, I do certain things. And we can talk about that at a later date, but there's like a shoulder flexion video on YouTube that might be of use to you in regards to, to how we have to control some of the things that we actually can control as we measure. But in general, let's just respect the fact that there's stuff going on underneath our measures. Now, um, when we see something that, that appears to be magnified. So when we talked about the, the hip external rotation video, um, a lot of that stuff gets blamed on laxity. Like people say, oh, we have overstretched ligaments, etc., and this is why we see these crazy measures. Well, that's just the failure of the structural reductionist model, not respecting the fact that there is shape change in the axial skeleton, there's reorientation of, of the sockets, and that promotes changes in the way that the, the, the measurements arise. So, so, so we have multiple influences. We've got, we've got a position, we've got connective tissue orientations, we've got muscle orientations that all influence these outcomes. And this crazy internal rotation measure is one of those as well. And, and so what you'll end up seeing, so if we looked at the average measure, remember we don't talk about norms, we talk about averages, we look at an average measure of hip internal rotation depending on what textbook you look at, it's gonna be somewhere around 40 degrees. But then you got that patient that walks in and you throw them on the table and you're measuring them, they go, oh my gosh, they have 60 degrees of hip internal rotation. You go, oh my goodness, that hip capsule is lax and it's usually not. So, so let's talk about what the orientation is that we're typically seeing under these circumstances. And then we can kind of, as you asked for, we will unpack this to a degree. So if I'm looking at, at the orientation of the acetabulum and, and if I look at the, the ligamentous structure of the hip has this cool little spiral kind of an, an orientation to it. And so the, the orientation in itself is if I try to turn this thing into internal rotation, it creates a constraint because it's already twisted in that direction to, to a certain degree. So this is the, one of the dirty little secrets about lower extremities is they're already twisted into internal rotation. That's why the dorsum of your foot is on top when it should be on the bottom. And so this is the twist. So if I try to twist this farther, I hit the constraint. But if I look at orientation of this anominate, I can actually put this in a position where I actually untwist the orientation of the hip. And all I have to do is move it up and over top of that femur. So this is gonna be an anterior orientation. So I will have um, traditional extension of the lumbar spine on the side where you get the magnified measure. And so that's gonna take this pelvis forward and over top of the, of the, uh, the femur. And if I take it far enough, I'm going to start to pick up internal rotation because essentially what I'm doing is I'm untwisting the capsule and then I take my measurement and then that picks up all that laxity. It's not laxity, it's just slack in, in the capsule created by position. I take that up and then I hit the constraint somewhere about 60 because I'm using a dead guy zero position. So a nice representation that I can use is sort of this wringing out the towel concept. So if I look at the, the twisted towel as if this was the ligamentous structure of, of the hip, when I'm, when I'm moving my interrotation, it's already twisted. And so there's my constraint to interrotation. But if I reorient the pelvis where it's over top of the femur and I actually start to untwist the towel first, then I have all of this slack that I can take up in the hip capsule, which is gonna give me my magnified internal rotation. So remember that I have other internal rotation measures to compare against to make sure that I am dealing with this orientation problem. So for instance, if I lack hip 
traditional hip extension or, or adduction. So traditional hip extension and adduction are internal rotation measures. So if I have a deficit in either one of those, then I know that my magnified internal rotation measure is most likely associated with, with this orientation. Um, I also have my iterations to compare against as well. But here's the problem that you're gonna run into when you see somebody with this magnified hip internal rotation. Chances are when you lay them on the table, um, what you would typically see is a loss of hip external rotation associated with the anterior orientation. So your expectation is that the same side shoulder would have a loss of external rotation, but that rarely shows up in this circumstance. Because of the extreme orientation, because of the traditional extension and internal rotation of the lumbar spine, what happens is I get a thorax that would normally be tilted forward, but it falls backwards on the table. This actually magnifies the external rotation measures in traditional external rotation and flexion. So it can be a little bit confusing using if you don't have the awareness that the thorax can actually move as you lay them down on the table. So keep that in mind when you're making your comparisons of, of same side hip to same side shoulder. So Brian, in a nutshell, your strategy is to create the reorientation under these circumstances and not go to blaming laxity. Unless you have some scenario where it's going to be very, very clear that, that they have some form of condition that would actually promote this laxity. Use your comparative measures, understand that all your measurements are dirty, and we have to account for the position on the table. Brian, I hope that answers your question for you. If it doesn't, um, please ask another question at askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and I will see you guys. So on Monday, we talked about how to improve a vertical jump for someone with a narrow infrasternal angle. Now let's talk about the wide infrasternal angles. Good morning. Happy Wednesday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand, and it is perfect. All right. Well, happy Wednesday. It is Wednesday. That means that tomorrow is Thursday, which means 6 a.m. tomorrow morning, Thursday morning, the Coffee and Coaches Conference call will take place as usual prior to my leaving on vacation. Also, a quick reminder, today at 1 p.m., for those of you that are members of IFAST University, you have a call at 1 p.m. Eastern Time with the one Mike Robertson. So don't forget about that. Okay. So time is always short on Wednesdays, as you know. So we're gonna dig into today's Q&A, which um, we talked about narrow ISAs and vertical jump on Monday. And I, I didn't realize that there was gonna be a bit of an uproar in the, in the Q&A email, but I got a slew of people that came through and they said, well, what about the wide ISAs? And it's like, I, I seem to have offended people by not talking about the wide. So we're gonna talk about wides today. Um, there's gonna be a little bit of a problems list like we had with the narrows, um, the, a little bit more on the extreme opposite end, but we're gonna see some similarities too because we're still, we're still dealing with, with tissue behaviors, we're still just dealing with time constraints. So when we talk about the difference between the, the narrow and the wides, when we talked about the, the narrows, we're talking about they, they wanted to send too far um, in, in their counter movement before a vertical jump, and so we would need to um, address measures to control that. Whereas with, the, with the, the wide ASAs, because of the concentric orientation of the, of the pelvic outlet, because of the concentric orientation of the extremities, we have a totally different situation here where, where they actually lack the downward movement um, within their, their technique of the counter movement. And so we get things that, that we refer to as back jumpers, where as they try to make their descent, they still need to go down, they still need to produce force in the ground, they still need to somehow capture some form of, of yielding action. But you'll see that the, the pelvis actually stops moving, and then you see this forward bend action during during the vertical jump. And they can still jump. I mean, there's still people that jump very, very high using, using this technique, but um, if we want to try to improve it, then we want to try to get a better descent in, the, in this pelvic outlet. So we need to capture a little bit more motion so we have more time to create the yielding action. And so, so that's going to be um, our, our step number one. Um, again, let's go back to the, to the tissue behaviors. 
The, the second thing we have to, to think about is like they just don't have a yielding action uh, available to them. So the degree of the exhalation bias, concentric orientation, and then if we superimposed any, any prolonged um, amount of, of heavy strength training on top of this, we have increased tissue stiffness. So the tissue behavior is biased towards an overcoming action. And so that tissue um, is much more difficult to deform. Um, and, and so we don't get the yielding action that we want there, um, especially when we talk about the internal mechanics. We wanna make sure that we can get the, the guts to push down on, on the pelvic outlet and create sort of this trampolining of, of these internal uh, forces. But because the internal pressures in a, in a wide infrasternal angle tends to be very, very high and very, very consistent, we don't have any gradient. And so the guts just tend to, to, to sit on top of that, that pelvic outlet and keep it continuously loaded. So again, we, we have a tissue stiffness problem. And then uh, number three would be the time constraint. Like, like I mentioned before, it's like we need enough time in the counter movement to, to load and, and create the yielding action and then create the, the release of, of that yielding action, which is the release of energy that allows us to jump. So if we go into strategies and we say strategy number one, we need to gain enough eccentric orientation of the outlet to, to uh, acquire some distance um, in, in the counter movement. So, um, I, you know I'm gonna mention this. I, I, I love the box squat for this circumstance. So, so whereas in the narrow, we're using the box to control the descent of the outlet, we're gonna actually use the same, same strategy here with a different purpose. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna progressively lower the height of the box so we can acquire this, this necessary descent in, in the counter movement and we're gonna make sure that we deload onto the box. So deloading onto the box distributes the load through the entire axial skeleton in, in the connective tissues, which is gonna produce this yielding action. So we get this sort of expansion at the bottom and then this recoil that, that propels us up off the box. So we start to train the, the, the descent of the outlet and so we're just gonna progressively lower that box height. Strategy number two, we want to increase the yielding action of the connective tissue. So we don't even have to leave the box squat just yet. So what we're going to do here is where we use the reverse band to slow the descent of, of, the, of the guts in the, the narrow ISA situation, what we want to do now is we want to accelerate them. So we, we, need, we need to create a, a gradient internally that allows the guts to travel downward at a faster rate. So when it does hit the pelvic outlet, we have enough force um, to, to produce the, the yielding action in the connective tissues internally. And so again, so we're gonna use the, the banded squat under these, these circumstances. So what you wanna understand here is that we're actually increasing the, the time of the load. So the duration that, that the load initiates to the end of the loading actually increases internally. And so what we get is, is this expansion of the connective tissue. So this is the yielding action that I talk about. Whereas if we did something that was really, really heavy and we have this instantaneous load internally where we maintain maximum pressure throughout the lift, now we, we don't have this pressure gradient, we don't have any duration of loading and that's instantaneous and that's what makes the tissue stiffer. This is why maximal strength training can actually become interference when we're trying to create an increase in vertical jump which requires this, this yielding action. So strategy number three then was we want to progressively increase our ability to, to yield through the tissues. So this is where we're going to start to do some, some box landing. So where we, with the, the uh, narrow ISA, we were using the, the seated box jump to, to control the outlet and produce this concentric orientation um, in, in the vertical jump. In this case, what we want to do is, again, we want to expand extend the duration that these tissues are loaded and we can do that through these box landings. Um, now, it doesn't need to be the, the maximal extreme. In fact, we know exactly how, how high the box should be based on your landing because what we don't want to do is we don't want to have a landing that necessarily exceeds the position that you would use to produce your ideal counter movement because anything lower than that is just an increase in time that could dampen some of the forces. So again, you're going to have to control the depth of those jumps um, based on what you would consider the ideal position in the counter movement, which you discover over time through practice and, and monitoring. 
Our strategy number four now is we gotta think about the timing. So we have the same issue with the narrow ISAs where we have a timing issue as to how long we're going to allow this counter movement to occur. We need a yielding action within the shortest amount of time frame that gives us the best return on investment. So this is where we're gonna to start to use uh, repeat jumps. And we're gonna start with lower amplitude because we have to precondition the, the body for this. And, and so um, the, the lower amplitude allows us to get repeat exposures. So we're, it's, it's almost like if you had to blow up a balloon, you're gonna stretch the balloon a little bit first. And so we're, we're gonna teach the connective tissues to store and release, store and release, store and release. And then what we do is we slowly expand the, the duration of that loading through the, through the repeated jumps. And so we might use something like a, uh, like an oscillatory squat like we did with, with the narrows, we can do that. Um, this will eventually become something that might, might look like a jump squat. Um, but the, the point is, is we're only limited by our creativity under these circumstances. But the idea is to slowly increase the amplitude of these jumps. So we start with low hurdles. What we may end up with is something that is, is a much higher hurdle that, that we're trying to clear under the circumstances. Um, if you've spent any time on, on the internet looking at, at, at jumping activities, you've probably come across uh, Werner Gunther's old videos. So he was a shot putter um, and, and does some amazing uh, plyometric activities, which they're just fun to watch, but it's just a representation of what is possible. It's not something that we would start with. We need to, again, precondition these people towards these activities. And eventually what we can do is maybe we can restore some of that yielding action and improve the vertical jump. So for all of you folks out there that were interested in the wide ISA vertical jump strategies, I hope this was helpful. If not, then just feel free to ask me a question at, at askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. And I will see you guys tomorrow morning at the uh, Coffee and Coaches Conference Call, 6 a.m. Thursday. Good morning. Happy Thursday. I have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect. Hey, Bill. Um, I was wondering, uh, I saw you posted on the forum uh, something about um, looking at the toes to right. get in a sense of whether somebody's uh, in game uh, wide or narrow. Uh, can yeah. you expand on that more? Like, so yeah. what else do we see on the, in the toes between these two uh, representations? All right, so, um, so you gotta think about, uh, some of the toe muscles. So you've got long flexors underneath the, the foot. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then you've got these short extensors on top of the foot. So if I was going to make a claw like that, that would be concentric orientation here, concentric orientation there, right? But they're different. So these are the long flexors here, short extensors there. You see it? Okay. So let me pull up a let me pull up a picture for everyone. Can everybody see that? That's somebody holding on for dear life. Okay. So so that's what I'm talking about. So the, so the muscles on the bottom of the foot are concentrically oriented. The muscles on top of the foot are concentrically oriented. You see that? So that means I have compression on the bottom of the foot and I have compression on top of the foot. Just like, hey, if I had compression on the front side of the body and compression on the back side of the body. So if I was squeezing you front to back. So let's just say that you're, you're an end game, compensatory strategy, exhalation, everything is squeezing the bejesus out of you. This is what the foot would look like. So this is a foot that is trying to get to um, the end, so they're trying to get to late propulsion, but the center of gravity is still back far enough that the heel stays on the ground. So normally in, in a late propulsive strategy, the heel would be off the ground and you would be up on the forefoot. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay, but if my heel stays down, right, the muscles that would lift the heel up can't lift the heel up because it's too heavy. So they grab the toes, which are lighter, and they pull the toes back. That's what you're looking at. Mm. So this is an easy way. It's like, like literally, let me see your bare feet and they're standing up and you see toes that look like this on the ground, late propulsion. A, 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 a single arm uh, supine press.
Uh-huh. I, I thought that it was producing a turn, but it's not, right? Because your back's on the ground. Uh, so this is going to be one of those it depends things, right? Okay. Okay. All right. So mm. um, if we if we imply a press, mm -hmm. so our intention is high force production. <clears throat> okay. So high force production would imply that I'm going to create a rather significant compressive strategy. Okay. Which means, so if you think about it, if you were setting up like a, like a bilateral symmetrical kind of a press of, of any kind, right. Um, you would want to be as, as, you know, fixed as possible, as stable as possible, which would imply that you're going to squeeze. Right. So I'm going to press, if I'm on my back, if I'm in, it's like in supine and I'm pressing, then I'm going to press my scaps into whatever surface that I'm on. I'm going to try to compress dorsal rostral. I'm going to try to, uh, the load, if I'm pressing, is going to compress me anteriorly. And so I'm going to minimize turn. Even if I do that with one arm, if I, if I up the load sufficiently, I will still compress. Because so I was thinking of the, um, the, the lateral rolling and stuff like that. And uh -huh. um, yeah, so I try to incorporate, like if I reach and press and okay, not hang heavy. On, okay. Hang on, hang on, mm -hmm. hang on, hang on. Let's not, let's not create a confusion of terms here, bud. So, mm -hmm. so when you say reach and press, now you've created mm -hmm. a, an element of confusion in terminology. Mm -hmm. If, if I, if I drive the, so if I, if I'm using one arm and I'm driving the, the if I'm pushing the scapula away from the surface, mm -hmm. all right. Where I, where I literally am pushing the scapula into the thorax to create the turn. Now I'm, I'm, I'm implying more of a reaching activity, mm -hmm. which will create a turn, right? But it's also going to reduce the force production. That's one of the, that's one of the ways that we distinguish the, the, the turning capabilities in, as far as an activity of, that we would select in, in the gym. Mm -hmm. It's like, if we're trying to create a turn Right. I, I want to imply that it's going to be more of a, a, a reach oriented activity, meaning that I'm going to I'm going to try to advance that side, mm -hmm. of the axial skeleton. Whereas if I am pressing, I am not advancing the axial skeleton. You just yeah, you just mm -hmm. do you understand okay. do you see the difference? So the two terms. Okay, I see, I see. Press and reach. Again, I, I, I try to distinguish, like we need some way to distinguish between the two representations because the implication that anytime my arm goes forward is a press is a little misleading. Like what is the relative load and how hard is it? So mm -hmm. if you're trying to restore movement on somebody with max effort loads, good luck, mm -hmm. right? Because it can't happen because at some point in time, I have to, I have to like, even if I'm not on the loaded side, look, Grace, you're back, air quotes. Um, so even on the unloaded side, if the if the the threshold of effort is high enough, I will compress. Right? If if we're talking about uh, here, here you go, Dwight. If we're talking about a major league pitcher throwing a baseball at at the point of maximum efforts, they compress both sides of their body, not just the baseball side, because they have to stop movement, right? So the higher the force production, the less movement is, is physically possible. All right, so I have a question uh, that relates to front foot elevated split squat versus rear foot elevated yep. split squat. Yep. I'm not totally sure when would be an appropriate moment to use the rear foot elevated split squat. Uh-huh. If you could describe an instance or a client presentation yep. that would warrant a rear foot elevated split squat. Yep. And why uh, you would choose that. Yeah. Okay. So so let's talk about a split squat in general first. Mm -hmm. Okay. The typical weight distribution, um, and this is the, the, so there is a there is a, a study um, that you can find on the um, split squat as to the weight distribution on the feet. And again, take it with a grain of salt because it, you can manipulate it, okay? But we're going to speak generally. Typically, what you're going to get as far as a distribution goes is a slightly higher load on the front foot than the back foot. And so um, if we're going to talk percentages, we're going to say, for the sake of discussion, it's 55% on the front foot, 45% on the back foot, 
Okay. So it's not even, it's just a little bit of bias towards the front foot. Got it? Got it. Okay. So if I pick up the back foot, and again, I think this is, I think my numbers are accurate, but, but don't quote me here until you read this, this study yourself. I think that the highest load that they got on the front foot by elevating the rear foot on a bench. So like the classical Bulgarian split squat um, level, right? Um, I think it was like 85 front foot, 25 back foot. And so, so by, by flip-flopping the, the foot orientation, you're just manipulating force. Okay, you're manipulating the load that is required to overcome, okay? So um, when I throw the front foot up, my intention is to reduce the load on the front leg. Okay, why would I wanna do that? because what I may have is a behavior in regards to that front foot that I do not want or, or, or I'm having trouble managing. So case in point, I have somebody that I'm trying to take from early propulsion. So I've been doing heels elevated stuff and I've got this, this nice posterior expansion now. And now I wanna transition them through middle with an element of tibial control. So if I need to reduce the forces on the front foot to teach them how to manage the tibia over the foot. So you've heard me talk about, about how that foot translates over or the tibia translates over the foot and how the arch influences how fast that tibia travels over the foot. If I need more control, I wanna take the weight away, the load on the front foot, so I can teach them how to translate the tibia over with, with, with an element of control so they don't accelerate too far. So they don't hit, hit the, the, the max P too, too soon, right? Okay, so I'm okay. teaching them a, a control element. So that's a flat foot, front foot elevated split squat, okay? So I would use that as I'm, I'm reintroducing this middle propulsive phase, all right? Now, so let's think about how would you intensify that process? So I got a guy that's got great control now with the front foot elevated. What would be the next thing to do to make it just a little bit harder, but, but maintain the same circumstance of, of controlling tibial translation? I'm asking you a question. Dropping that front foot a little bit? Yeah, so we put it on the floor. So instead of putting on a six inch box, now it's on the floor. So what did I do? I just put greater load through the front foot. Now he's got to manage that. So it's just like putting weight on the bar. It's just another way to create a <coughs> progression in the exercise itself, okay? So once he's good at that, then what do I do? There you go, you see? So you've, you've already answered your own question. You see the difference? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's very simple when you, when you look at it that way, you go, oh, well, that makes total sense now, right? And then you've got any number of variations on a theme as to what you can do in regards to the, the, the movement velocity, right? Load, I can, I can throw my offsets on there. So I can capture a lot of things, right? And manipulate this, this one activity in many different ways to accomplish many different tasks. And I can create these little micro progressions where, yeah, it's the same activity, but today it's just going to be a little bit harder than it was last. So I have a joint lever question and I'm going to give away some free stuff. Good morning. Happy Friday. I have no coffee in hand and it is Perfect. Man, hadn't had this in a week. Truly missed it. That's a good batch, Dr. Mike. Way to go. Um, so Friday, just got back from vacation. Need a massive catch-up day. You know, the one thing, the one drawback from uh, going on vacation is you have this accumulation of stuff while you're gone. So the Q&A email, email box is full and we'll get to those things as we can over the next week or so. But I do have some housekeeping stuff and then we'll get to a joint lever question here in just a second. Um, while I was on vacation, I thought, well, how's another way that we could take this transaction thing off the table and help some more people? And so here's, here's what we're gonna do, so pay attention. I'm gonna do a series of, of free 15 minute consultations. So here's what you're gonna have to do. You gotta go to the, to the askbillhartman at gmail.com email, askbillhartman at gmail.com. In the subject line, put free, 
15-minute consultation request. If you put anything else in it, in the subject line, I will delete it. Um, free 15-minute consultation request. So here's how it's gonna work. You get to ask me anything that you want in that 15 minutes. We're gonna record the whole thing on Zoom because chances are if you've got a specific question, someone else does too. And so we'll be able to help other people with this. Um, at the end of the week or so, when we get around to the Coffee and Coaches Conference call on Thursday mornings, I'm gonna have those fine folks um, do a little bit of voting and they'll vote on the best question of the week. And if you get picked as the best question person, here you go you get the t-shirt hoodie and one of those. You get a hat too. So a little incentive. I don't know how big an incentive that is. For some, maybe a lot. For some, maybe very little. Doesn't really matter to me. This is what we're gonna do. So like I said, we'll be able to help a lot of other people and we'll be able to get your questions answered as well. So um, again, one more time, subject line, free 15 minute consultation request at askbillhartman at gmail.com. Okay, so. Let's dig into a little bit of a Q&A question to wrap up the week for you guys leading into a, a great weekend. And this comes from Patrick and Patrick says, hi, Bill. Hi, Patrick. He goes, is looking at joint levers um, totally, is looking at joints as levers totally useless? And I would say, Patrick, that, that I don't look at joints as levers um, for, for various reasons that we'll get into, but there may be some use in some of this two-dimensional representation that we typically use um, via Euclidean geometry. So they break things into the imaginary planes and they try to calculate forces and they look at joints as levers. And there may be some, some good reasoning for that because what it does allow us to do is potentially identify where we might be seeing loads or stressors being applied in certain aspects of, of movement, which might be helpful to determine, you know, causation of, of you know, damage, pain, injuries, however you wanna look at this thing. Um, but from the reality standpoint, the reason that I don't like to look at, at joints as levers is because we need one specific thing um, for a lever system, and that is a fulcrum. So to quote Archimedes, it's like, give me a lever long enough and a fulcrum on which to place it and I shall move the world. So without the fulcrum, you don't really have a good lever system. The problem with the, with the fulcrum in a joint is that we have friction and we have heat. And both of those are going to be destructive to the hyaline cartilage at the ends of the bones. Um, as, as durable as it may seem, it is, still, it is still delicate in regards to its ability to, to wear away. The other aspect of it that, that we haven't talked about, I don't think before, is that the, this friction would actually slow down joint movement, which would make movement very, very difficult. So if we think about normal walking, the hip joint's gonna move at about 200 degrees per second. If we look at throwing a baseball, it's about 7,000 to 9,000 degrees per second. And so if you wanna get an idea how fast that is, swing your arm around in a circle 20 times in one second, and that's how fast a Major League Baseball pitcher's arm is moving. And so if we did have levers, joint levers, and we did have fulcrums, and we did have that friction, I don't think we'd be able to produce these movements. And they would be incredibly destructive um, all, all at the same time. So rather than me digging deeper into this, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna cut away. We're gonna go to a, a video that I did previously where I was talking about um, why bones don't touch and why the, the joints aren't levers. Because I think it'd be a good video for you to reference, Patrick. Um, so for the rest of you, um, have a great weekend. Have a terrific Friday. I will see you guys next week. We'll be digging into some Q&As and hopefully we'll get a few of these free 15-minute um, Zoom calls scheduled over the weekend and we'll present some of those for you next week. Everybody have a great weekend. I'll see you later. But we're going to cover a lot of the mechanical aspects that I think are in play and are important to me in regard to how I perceive these things through my model. First things first, Johnny, we're going to invert your problem a little bit. We're going to say, why is it bad if bones touch? So, so the bones touching thing um, probably comes from the using dead guy anatomy as a model. So, so dead guys actually do have levers. And so to have a lever, you have to have a fulcrum. And so the bones touch on dead guys because they're dry. And so they look like levers. And so then in school, they teach you that, oh, your joints move just like levers. The reality is in a living, breathing human, and the fact that we're full of water and we've got synovial fluid in our joints, we don't have fulcrums. If we had a fulcrum, there would be a lot of pressure and heat that would be released every time we moved and we would destroy our joints in no time. And so we don't want fulcrums. 
um, in our joints. In fact, if you do have a fulcrum in your joint, you're probably talking to the orthopedic surgeon right now. So now what we have to understand is that we have to have mechanisms that keep these bones from touching. So let's break these down. Now, let's start with structure. So your 99% water, 1% stuff, your 1% stuff is almost all the same and it's all viscoelastic tissue. And so I have a representation of viscoelastic tissues in my silly putty. And so this is viscoelastic, so it's gonna behave very similarly. And so viscoelastic tissue will behave differently depending on the forces that are applied. So if I stretch this gently, I get this nice elongation of, of my silly putty, but if I pull it really hard and fast, it snaps off clean. So what that means is, is the tissue behavior changes based on the forces that are applied. And so when I apply a high rate of force, I get very, very stiff viscoelastic tissue. So this is the overcoming action that I always talk about when we're talking about concentric overcoming or eccentric overcoming behaviors. So I have an increased stiffness of tissue. So if I had an orientation of, of fibers as such that if I loaded them at, the, at, a, at a higher rate, I can make them really, really stiff. And so we actually have that. So when we look at the fascia that surrounds everything, so we talk about the, the periosteum, we talk about the, the fascia that surrounds all of the ligamentous structure and all the structures around the knee. So the knee is very busy when you look at it from a connective tissue standpoint. And so what happens is when we load that, that joint, those viscoelastic tissues behave very, very similar to my silly putty. They get very, very stiff and they create this rigidity around the knee and that actually pushes the bones apart. So now we have a mechanical uh, protective mechanism that helps us keep those, those bones apart. So that's very, very useful. Now, it's a little counterintuitive too, by the way, when you think about it, it's like you think of these are like tension elements and stretchy stuff, they become very, very stiff. So keep that in mind. Now. Let's go to inside the knee joint. So the, the knee is filled with water, basically. It's synovial fluid, so it's water with some protein stuff that floats around. Well, water is this really, really unique substance um, that, that is cooler than you can imagine. And so water behaves differently, just like our viscoelastic tissues behave differently under different forces, water behaves differently depending on what substance it's next to. And so we have hyaline cartilage that lines the, uh, the, the joint, um, if we talk about the knee, so at the end of the femur, we have hyaline cartilage. On the tibia, we have hyaline cartilage. And so when the water's right next to it, it promotes the separation of the water into positively and negatively charged water. So the negative charged water is right along the hyaline cartilage on both sides, and then the positively charged water's going right through the middle of the knee. So if you took the north end of, of, of two magnets and try to push them together, you could feel the repulsion between, between the two magnets. So this positively charged water is constantly trying to push its positive charges apart. And so now we've got this electromagnetic force that is now pushing the knee apart. So now we have a, an electromagnetic effect to create uh, this, this separation. And so there's a cool study from 1980 from Teriyama, it's Japanese. Um, and they took fresh cadaver knees with intact synovial joints and they applied downward pressure through the joint, about 220 pounds into the knee joint, and they compressed, and then it hit sort of like a, like a maximum uh, position, but the bones didn't touch. So they got really, really close together, but they did not touch. And so right away, even, even in, in a, a, a joint that's not living, but it's intact, and, and um, we have all the structures available to us, it still behaves similarly. So it keeps the, the bones apart. So again, very, very strong electromagnetic effect. How do we know? Well, in the same study, they took a hip joint that, that had uh, arthritis. So, so on the weight-bearing surface, there was no cartilage. They did the same compressive uh, test and they got the subchondral bones to touch because there was no cartilage in the way to create this electromagnetic effect and keep the, keep the joints apart. So kind of a big deal. Now, synovial fluid has little protein things that are floating around. Proteins are negatively charged and they would, they would attract positive charges just like two magnets. So you take the north end of one magnet, the south end, and they snap right together. And so, so we have these proteins that are surrounded by positive charge. We get more positive charges. And so now the synovial fluid itself helps us create that, that middle uh, positively charged area that keeps the, the joints apart. <clears throat> So if, for those of you that have had arthritic 
uh, changes and, and, and some, some wonkiness in your knees, if you will, that have had the Synvisc injections, what they're doing is they're injecting you with water that has protein in it and it helps restore some of that mechanism, which is why you might feel better for a little while until, until the effect is no longer um, intact. So we have structure, we have mechanics, we have electromagnetic forces that keep the bones apart. So if they keep the bones apart, how on earth do we get arthritic changes? So now we gotta look at the synovial joint a little bit closer. So when we look at the structure of the synovial joint, on either end, as long as we maintain our hyaline cartilage intact, it appears that we can keep our, our, our bones apart. So we have to look at how, what affects that hyaline cartilage. And we say, oh, pressure, tension, blah, 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 blah. But the reality is, is hyaline cartilage gets its nutrition from the bony side. So you'll see the little little arteries that I drew on my picture here. And that, that blood supply is what gives the nutrition to the cartilage. So it diffuses um, from, from the, uh, the bloodstream towards the hyaline cartilage on the bony side. Well, if I put enough pressure and tension on those bones, those trabecula will compress. If the trabecula at the ends of the bone compress enough, I restrict the blood flow to the, to the ends of the joint. Now, these trabecula can also fracture. So, you know, you played 15 years in the NBA, you're probably gonna get some, some, some fracturing of those trabecula. They're kind of like shock absorbers. If you've ever driven on the, uh, on the interstate and you see the, the trash barrels um, right, right before, below the, the, the uh, abutment of the overpass. And what those are, they're, they're trash barrels filled with water. So if you drive off the road and you hit them, it'll slow you down so you don't slam right into the bridge. Trabecula kind of the same way. They're kind of like shock absorbers. So they're filled with, with space and water. And so when you land, they compress, but they can fracture over time and then you compress. And then the subchondral bone actually gets denser. And so you'll see this in arthritic research. Well, they'll, they'll see the, the precipitating uh, uh, changes of the uh, subchondral bone gets denser and denser and denser. Well, that's gonna reduce our blood flow to the, to the cartilage. The cartilage will slowly wear away and it gets thinner and thinner and thinner. So now we're losing our electromagnetic effect. So now we can't keep the joint farther and farther apart. And so now we do get compressive strategies um, that will actually become destructive. And so again, on that end, that's pretty much how I see a lot of these arthritic changes occurring because it's a pressure related phenomenon. It's a blood flow re related phenomenon. It's a nutrition to the cartilage. By the way, discs do the same thing. Okay, don't tell anybody. Now, how do we get medial compartment versus lateral compartment? So now we gotta think about our propulsive strategies. So our propulsive strategies are what we apply into the ground. And so propulsion in, in and of itself is biased towards internal rotation. So we have to apply pressure to the ground. So remember when, when we evolved, we were, we were externally rotated, we were swimmers, we came up on land, we had to learn how to internally rotate and press into the ground. And so Johnny, when we talk about the internal rotation, I gotta internally rotate my femur, right? Because I gotta drive down into the ground through internal rotation. So uh, more often than not, I'm gonna be applying a little bit more force towards that medial compartment as I internally rotate the femur to push into the ground. And so, if we talk about the pressure mechanism that we just talked about in regard to the, the arthritis, that's why we would probably see the bias towards more medial compartment problems than lateral compartment problems because we're applying forces into the ground. We have to just because of course.